The following presentation was recorded at the Buddhist Society of Victoria, Malvern East, Australia. Please visit our website at bsv.net.au. Okay, so good morning again everyone uh, and uh, welcome back. We're going to carry on with the uh, famous Upakilesa Sutta, this um, wonderful sutta about some of the most impressive of the Buddha's disciples and how they're all practicing together here. It's a very, um, I don't know, to me it's a very interesting sutta and maybe one of the things I should say straight away, maybe for some of you, this feels a bit kind of uh, profound. Yeah, we're dealing with very refined states of meditation, how to overcome the um, kind of remaining defilements of the mind before you enter into deep states of meditation and samadhi and these kind of things. But remember that the um, refined defilements of the mind, they are really just a refined expression of ordinary defilements. Uh, so the kind of way that we deal with these refined things is similar to the way you deal with more coarser problems in meditation practice. So it's all relevant. It all kind of ties in uh, to the same kind of things. Uh, um, it's just that here it's a bit more detailed uh, and a bit more uh, refined, uh, essentially. So it's still, I would say, very relevant uh, uh, to the practice. Uh, um, the other thing is, you know, kind of more of a bird's eye view idea of the sutta, maybe things I should have spoken about already, is that, well, what exactly are they doing here? What is this practice that they are doing here? Yeah, they are saying that they are dwelling, they're perceiving forms and they're perceiving light. But exactly what is it? Do they have, what is the meditation that they're doing? Are they doing a specific meditation or whatever? And usually the kind of context for these kind of experiences is satipatthana practice or breath meditation. These things are a result of the breath meditation. Yeah, so kind of the background here, and we know that uh, Venerable Anuruddha, he is said to have been an expert in Satipatthana practice, uh, so quite likely he would have done breath meditation, that would have been the foundation for all of these kind of experiences. Uh, so uh, that kind of gives you a little bit of context, otherwise it can be hard to really uh, pinpoint know what's going on. Uh, and uh, the other thing which is very kind of fascinating about this particular sutta, which I've always found kind of um, eye-opening, if you like. Yeah. And that is the basis for all these experiences uh, yeah, is basically just kindness. We saw at the beginning how the Buddha talks about harmony, the importance of harmony, and then they express how they do that. Uh, and then based on that harmony, they get all of these uh, uttarimanusadhammas, the superhuman qualities. Uh, it all arises from that. Uh, and uh, so it's like, that's really all you have to do. <laughs> it's so simple, right? It's just you are kind, but of course the kindness is a very profound kind of kindness. It's a profound kind of wholesome states of mind. But uh, that's really all that is, there's to it. And then based on that, uh, the meditation just happens. And so it shows you that simple things are very profound when they're taken all the way to the kind of logical conclusion or whatever you want to call it, uh, yeah, where you are mentally always inclining in the right way. And of course, if the mind is inclining in the right way, so is your speech and actions. It all kind of comes together through the mind. But that's really the kind of the, uh, that's the critical thing here. Yeah, just having compassion, having understanding, seeing the good qualities in others, uh, appreciating your own practice. Uh, and then you close your eyes and these things just happen based on that. Uh, 
There's also, at the back of this, is also the idea of right view. Uh, I mentioned before how right view and sila are the two foundations uh, for meditation practice. That's also there. That's kind of implied in this sutta. It is not mentioned so much, uh, but it's implied because they are Buddhist monks. You can assume that they know how to uh, think about the world in the right way, how to utilize the meditation experiences for insight, etc. That's kind of also at the back there. But uh, sila is what enables uh, the mind to really become stilled like this. Uh, so this is some of the uh, kind of the background information. And it makes the path look very, very simple. Uh, yeah, you, all you do, you are kind, you live morally to the best of your ability, you have compassion and these kind of things, and then you practice mindfulness of breathing. And that's really all there is almost to this path. It's very simple. And often we make things far too complicated, and I think the complications often they detract, because we get so full of concepts, so full of ideas in our minds, we try to figure out dependent origination in forward and reverse order, cessation and, and origination order. And, and these things are actually interesting. Uh, but uh, there comes a point when you let those put those things to one side uh, and all you do is do the very easy, simple practices. Uh, the more simple things are, the more powerful they tend to be uh, because uh, the clutter of the mind doesn't get in the way. Uh. Why do we even think about dependent origination then? What's the point of con contemplating the more profound aspects of the Buddhist teachings? Uh? And to me... The, the uh, idea behind those things is more to have confidence in uh, Buddhism, confidence in the Dhamma, to understand that there is this uh, whole world view that fits together really well. Uh, the, you know, the, to be able to be kind, you have to know why you're going to be kind. Uh, right? uh, okay, kindness, it sounds like a nice thing, but you really need to be motivated in a very deep way. Uh, and that motivation, to me, comes from this right view. Uh, um, and an important aspect of that right view is understanding things like dependent origination, causality, conditionality, uh, uh, understanding the various levels of the path, uh, what we're trying to achieve, the idea of the meaning of life, all of these kind of things. Uh, and that comes together by understanding these teachings in a deeper way. Uh, so that for me has been the reason why I have always enjoyed contemplating dependent origination, for example, and all of these things, because it brings everything together in a nice way. Then you are motivated to do this practice properly. Huh? So, but this will vary from person to person. Huh? And so for some of you, it may be enough. Maybe you have so much faith and confidence already. Okay, just, you know, just be kind, just watch the breath or whatever. That may be sufficient. Huh? But for some of you, it may be important to contemplate more about how this whole thing uh, fits together, you kind of get the bird's eye view, you see the big picture. Huh? And when you see that big picture, you can see how the little parts of that picture, the individual pixels in that picture, how they fit together with the other pixels to make up this beautiful thing called the, the Dhamma, this over, overall uh, view of almost of reality, of human mind. What is the human mind? Well, that is reality. Huh? That is the, uh, what, what is, makes the world. Uh, so, so simple, uh, so easy. And uh, now when we go through these um, obstacles of the mind, again, we don't want to make it too complicated. Uh, uh, it is just, uh, again, you know, having some guidelines to kind of move us in the right direction. So, um, yesterday we were looking at some of the um, uh, problems. Uh, yeah, we had a look at, first of all, doubt. Uh, and then we had a look at uh, loss of focus, which is amanasikara. can also be translated as non-attention or attending in the wrong way or the wrong place. Uh, 
And then we had dullness and drowsiness. This is tinna midda. Um, so uh, these things are, you know, related to the five hindrances. They, they can be roughly be considered the three for, three last of the five hindrances. Uh, uh, lack of attention is a kind of restlessness, probably. And now we're going to look at uh, more of these uh, hindrances, and they are all very uh, interesting uh, in a way. And some of these really come up when the mind becomes very peaceful. Uh. So then the Buddha goes on uh, while meditating. Terror uh, arose in me, uh, and because of that, my samadhi, my stillness, fell away. Uh. When samadhi falls away, the light and vision of forms vanish. Uh. Suppose a person was traveling along a road, uh, and killers uh, were to spring out at them from both sides. Uh. They would feel terrified because of that. Uh. In the same way, terror arose in me. Uh. Uh, I'll make sure that neither doubt, nor loss of focus, nor dullness, or drowsiness, nor terror arise in me. Yeah. And uh, this is interesting, isn't it? This idea of the murderers springing out from both sides. You wonder, what does this got to do with meditation practice? Uh, <laughs> it sounds a bit over the top, doesn't it? Uh, but uh, it, there's actually an important point that is being made here. When the Buddha comes with a symbol, there's always an important point. Uh, and so these things are really worthy of some reflection to understand what is going on here. And of course, terror, anyone who has had some deep meditation experience will know that sometimes it can be fearful. Yeah, you come close, you feel the power of the meditation. You feel the kind of, you're being drawn in, but you are at the same time, you feel the power is so great, you're afraid of being drawn into it. And this is a natural response to these powerful experiences. And uh, so you can, you know, sometimes when you get to deep meditation, you can expect to see, feel that sense of apprehension maybe. It doesn't have to be. People vary enormously in how they experience these things. Some will be very terrified. Uh, but why do we feel so terrified? What is, what is frightening about this? And what is frightening about this uh, is that your ego is challenged. Uh, your sense of self is challenged. Uh, because these are states where your sense of self gets kind of immersed into a larger reality. It's kind of starting to dissolve a little bit. And the most important thing that dissolves around this time is the sense of uh, your, your um, independence in the sense of being able to do what you want. You're giving that up. Yeah, your ability to act is being given up. Your will is being given up. And you're kind of just... Im uh, merging with a larger reality. Uh, you're merging with kind of a, um, a, a, a state, it's something that is purely a state, uh, and you're giving up your sense of being able to control it. You can't control it anymore. Uh, and that sense of not being able to control, uh, that is kind of scary for most people. Uh. Of course, the reality is it's not scary at all. Uh, what you really do recognize after you do this a few times, you realize that actually the problem was the doing in the first place. Uh, all this wanting, all this willing, all this uh, feeling that you're in charge, actually that is part of the problem. Uh, because it is dukkha, it is painful to always do, always be on the move, always being restless, always being controlling. Uh, and when you give that up, that sense of peace and joy that comes uh, with giving that up, uh, that is actually what is really attractive. Uh, but you have to go through that ability to let go of doing, do, let go of creating, let go of being in charge of your own life. And that is the problematic part. And that is where the uh, sense of uh, fear or danger or apprehension can come in. Uh, yeah? So this is uh, 
Uh, there's a sense of self that is being challenged here. Huh? And that is why we have the simile of the murderers. Now you can understand, because what is being murdered here huh, is kind of an aspect of you that you're leaving behind. Huh? And that feels like something has been killed, maybe, huh, inside of you. Huh? Yeah. And so this is kind of the thing here. Huh? It is like uh, you have had a relationship with the doing for so long, and now you have to give up that relationship. Huh? It's like any other relationship in the world, right? It kind of is painful to give up when you are really attached to someone else. Uh, and here you have a relationship with doing, yeah? and you have to kind of gradually abandon that. Uh. So how do we overcome this fear? And the way to overcome it is just get used to it. Uh. You start to look at your um, gradual um, improvement in stillness, uh, the gradual kind of tranquility of the mind getting deeper and deeper, and you start to realize that the reason why tranquility is so powerful is precisely because you are gradually giving up doing. Yeah? And as you contemplate this idea of giving up doing, be actually being very, very attractive, uh, we all know that from our meditation experience. Uh, a lot of restlessness, a lot of agitation is actually very painful. Uh, and this is one of the reasons why meditation is such a blissful thing, because you're giving up that doing. Uh, and uh, then you take it one step further, uh, you give it up completely. Uh, and by experiencing this, by contemplating it a bit, by looking at actually what is going on, uh, you start to see that this is a positive thing. And the fear gradually subsides. Uh, and then one day you wonder, why on earth was I afraid of something that is actually so beautiful, so blissful, uh, so attractive, uh, so much worthy, some, something that actually leads you basically towards a very deep sense of meaning here. So that is the uh, fear that can arise in meditation. Sometimes people can be fearful. It's interesting. People can be fearful of the small little things. Yeah, oh, my hands are disappearing here. Yeah, oh, what's, what's going on? What should I do? My hands are disappearing. Okay, don't worry. If your hands are disappearing, it's a good sign. It just means that they are still. And when something is still, after a while, there is no input to the brain, so you just can't feel it anymore. It's a good sign. It means you're becoming peaceful. And uh, so you just... Uh, enjoy the positive aspects and you see the peace and then you can give up the things that are coarse and negative. So that is the idea of terror here. The Pali word is chambitatta. It means like you're trembling, you're a little bit fearful. Okay. Next one. While meditating, excitement arose in me and because of that my samadhi fell away. When samadhi falls away, the light and vision of forms vanish. Suppose a person were looking for an entrance to a hidden treasure. And all at once they come across five entrances. They would feel excited because of that. In the same way, excitement arose in me. And then you overcome that and you make sure that none of these problems arise again in the future. So this is like... Uh, the idea when you feel that something really interesting is about to happen. Uh, yeah, this is a kind of a problem that many people have in the meditation. Oh, it's coming together now. Oh, it's getting exciting. <laughs> something is happening in my meditation. Very common experience. Oh, the joy is about to arise or the stillness is about to come or something really powerful is about to happen or nimitta is about to come or whatever. Uh, and we start to anticipate. We're looking for something and we get excited about what is happening. And of course, excitement is the exact opposite of what we want because excitement is restlessness, it is agitation, it is all of these kind of things. And so we need to try to avoid the excitement. And 
So again, how do we avoid the excitement? And one of the things that you start to realize after a while is that these things are completely out of your control anywhere here. You don't know what's going to happen next. It depends on causes and conditions that you cannot really see properly because they're so profound. They are hidden under the surface. And sometimes the meditation will work and sometimes it won't. And sometimes it's really hard to tell exactly why sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. And so there's no re- ground for being excited because you actually have no idea what's going to happen next anyway. Yeah. So what is there to be excited about? Uh, uh, the, r- the real value of any meditation is to enjoy whatever happens uh, so far. Uh, if you have had a bit of peace and tranquility, you enjoy that. Uh, if you had a little bit of joy and happiness, you enjoy that. Uh, and because you don't know what's going to happen next, you just enjoy what you have uh, And uh, so these things are entirely out of your control. So it kind of makes no sense to be excited uh, because you don't know what's going to happen. And after a while, you just learn to just enjoy what you have, to allow things to develop on their own. Uh, Remember, these are natural things that happen according to natural causes. uh, got nothing to do with you. uh, And the excitement is just a sense of self trying to control things, trying to be in charge of things, uh, when actually that sense of self, you know by now, it is kind of... It's not very uh, stable, not very reliable anyway. Uh, ultimately, it is compl- has to go completely. Uh, so let those things be. Uh, you don't get excited. You just enjoy the journey, every step on the journey. Even if you can't do anything except for just relaxing in your meditation because you had a rough day or whatever, that is also okay. Uh, and you enjoy every little bit. Uh, and then uh, these things just develop down the track. Uh, you don't know what it's going to be this year or next year or tomorrow or today. Uh, and that's all perfectly fine for you uh. so um, uh, it talks about five entrances here uh. that's also kind of interesting why does it talk about five entrances uh? and um, mm. <laughs> and I suspect that what it means and we will see this later on when we come to the towards the end of the sutta that is a reference to the five fold jhana yeah, if there are um, five jhanas, there's four jhanas usually, but there's also a five-fold exposition of jhana. And because this sutta specifically talks about five jhanas, it, this could be a reference to five jhanas, maybe. So the entrance is like the, uh, the, this is, you know, the entry point to that treasure. The treasure is the jhana, and these are the five entrances going into the five different places. Maybe. I'm not entirely sure, but uh, that could be the case. So the jhanas are the treasures. Uh, yeah, these are the uttarimanusadamma, uh, the uh, superhuman qualities that we're trying to achieve. That's why they are treasures. Uh, elsewhere in the suttas, the uh, uh, the mind is called the gold. Uh, yeah, and it talks about the refining of gold in the same way. Our job is to refine the mind, and of course, this process we are seeing here is precisely the refining of the mind, uh, so we can find that gold. Uh, and gold is just like the mind. If, the, if you have gold that comes straight out of the ground, it is not very beautiful uh, because it is full of impurities. It doesn't really shine. It's not brilliant. It's not really malleable. It can't be used for ornaments or whatever. Uh, but then you refine that gold. You take out the impurities. Uh, and after a while, it becomes really shiny and beautiful. Uh, and the mind is just like that. Uh, you get out, take the impurities out. And when you take the impurities out of the mind, the mind becomes shiny and brilliant. Uh, and it is conducive to enormous amount of happiness. Uh, of course, gold is just a simile. Gold is not really conducive to all that much happiness. Big deal, right? Uh, but the mind, that is where the real happiness is. Uh, and so um, this is the idea of um, finding a treasure. These are the real treasures in life. Uh, 
ordinary treasures of life are really not all that significant. This is the real treasure here. This is what this is uh, so extraordinarily interesting uh, and why it is conducive to finding the very meaning of life itself. Uh. All right. Um, while meditating, discomfort uh, arose in me. Uh. I'll make sure that neither doubt, etc., all of these things, nor discomfort will arise again. Uh. The Pali word is dutulla. Dutulla means something like coarseness. Uh, yeah, there's a coarseness uh, arises, and the coarseness will be uncomfortable compared to what you are uh, experiencing. Uh. So it may be that something is uh, impinging uh, on your meditation. Yeah, perhaps the body, feel the body a little bit. Uh, perhaps you, uh, there's another senses that are activated somehow. Uh, and uh, you cannot really find the ease in the meditation because of that. Uh, but it might also be discomfort in the mind because uh, you are here uh, starting to approach things that are very powerful. Yeah, and you can feel a bit, suddenly you feel a bit out of your depth. You wonder what is going on? Can I deal with this? Uh, and this is kind of, of course, you can't. You can't deal with it. You just allow it to happen. If you try to deal with it, of course, it's not going to work. Uh, that is exactly where you get it wrong. It's a wrong perception uh, where the sense of self, again, makes itself, kind of interferes in the process. Uh, so uh, it can be, this, these things are uncomfortable simply because we're not used to them in this way. So you feel a kind of mental discomfort. Uh, so you just learn to accept these things. You learn to be peaceful. You learn to enjoy those more subtle aspects of the mind. And as you do that, uh, you start not just to be comfortable with these things, but you understand that this is actually the real comfort. Uh, everything else beforehand was problematic. Uh, and then you go beyond, gradually, stage by stage, uh, deeper and deeper into your meditation practice. Uh, so you overcome the dutulla. A lot of these things you can see is about getting used to these states, uh, yeah, understanding what they are. Uh, uh, understanding how to look at the asada and the adinava and the nisarana, understanding where the real gratification is, where the real uh, drawbacks and problems are, and then going for the nisarana, the release uh, from these things, uh, release from the coarser, moving on uh, into the more subtle aspects of the mind. Uh, while meditating, excessive energy arose in me, uh, and because of that my samadhi, my stillness, fell away. Uh, when stillness falls away, the light and the vision of forms vanish. Suppose a person was to grip a quail too tightly in their hands. It would die right there. And then I will make sure that none of these uh, uh, defilements or problems arise in the mind. So uh, excessive uh, energy. Uh, yeah, sometimes that means you're trying perhaps a little bit too hard. Uh, a little bit of effort is going into it uh, when really you should just relax and you should enjoy, uh, enjoy what is happening. Uh, and that uh, trying is like holding on to a quail. A quail is like a small bird. Uh, yeah? And uh, if you hold on to a small bird, uh, and then that bird will die because you're gripping it too tightly. Uh, so this is just uh, uh, too much energy in the mind. The mind gets excited. It says elsewhere in the suttas that too much energy leads to restlessness. Uh, and this is probably what is happening here. And then you destroy your meditation by gripping it, uh, using your will when really you should just stand back uh, and allow things to be uh, instead of gripping things. Uh. So uh, you just experience uh, rather than make the experience happen. Uh. 
There's a difference there. Experiencing, patisang vedi is a Pali word. Uh, and that is, you see that throughout the Anapanasati Sutta, it is about patisang vedi, experiencing, uh, not doing, uh, allowing experiences to happen, uh, allowing them to grow, allowing them to get stilled, uh, allowing gladness and all of these things to arise in the mind. Uh. So you learn to experience without interfering. Uh. And then comes the opposite. Uh, while meditating overly lacks energy arose in me. Uh, and because of that, my samadhi fell away. Uh, again, the same thing. When samadhi falls away, the lights and the vision of forms vanish. Uh, suppose a person was to grip the quail too loosely. Uh, it would fly out of their hands. Uh, yeah, and then you make sure that none of these things happen in the future. Uh, so um, uh, here uh, it is... Uh, 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 this this means that you don't kind of ap apply the mind at all, uh, or you focus you don't focus properly on the object, uh, and the mind kind of wavers. Perhaps uh, it doesn't really focus on what you're looking at. Uh, one of the very last factors of um, anapanasati is samadhang chittang, uh, stilling the mind, yeah, um, taking the mind into samadhi. So you have to kind of stay with the object, uh, and you have to focus rightly here. Uh, and that does not mean that you use much effort on your part. It just means that you know where to focus in the right way. So you allow, and then when you focus in the right way, and your mind is happy and glad, the energy comes from that gladness, the enjoyment of actually just being with the object. So it doesn't necessarily mean that you're doing, it just means that you are focusing in such a way that the energy of the mind comes about because of the happiness and joy and all the good qualities of the meditation practice. So again, doing and not doing. Uh, it's about doing as little as possible, uh, but making sure that you focus, uh, you keep your focus in the right place. Uh. Um, while meditating, longing arose in me. Uh, uh, I will make sure that neither doubt, etc., loss of focus, nor longing arises in me. Uh. And uh, longing here is a kind of desire, uh, a subtle kind of desire. Uh, maybe you're longing for results. Uh, when is the samadhi going to happen? When am I going to become, see, have deep insight? When am I going to become a stream entering uh, And uh, this is kind of a very common question among meditators. Yeah, wow, I am really trying to become a stream enter in this life. Uh, this is my goal in this life. Uh, and then you long to become a stream enter. Yeah, and that kind of that longing becomes an obstacle in your meditation practice. Uh, and this is why it is so important not to really have determinations when you set out. I, people often talk about having determinations about I'm going to get into a jhana and become a stream mentor or whatever. But I don't think that is, that, that should be, I mean, of course, we are heading towards these things. And so we kind of have a, a sense of moving in that direction. But don't make it anything important in your mind because it will actually block your ability to meditate it will be a longing it will be a desire it will be something there at the back of your mind uh, which is going to make it more difficult for you to when it comes to these stages on the path uh, so your job is just to enjoy what you have not to long for the future uh, not to long for any uh, attainments you had before uh. one of the interesting things about meditation of course once you've had one nice attainment in meditation or in one nice experience maybe is a better way to put it uh, then you want it back again uh, yeah and so, and this is kind of the problem we had before about excitement you have had something before uh, now you want it back uh, 
Uh, and one nice way of overcoming that idea of wanting these things back uh, is to remember that meditation never really repeats itself in exactly the same way. Yeah, so you may have one nice experience, uh, but if you want it back, uh, actually you're trying to repeat the experience, when that usually doesn't really happen anyway. Uh, experiences are usually a little bit different. Uh, they come in slight variations. Uh, there are some things that happen that are you know, you feel peaceful, you feel piti, sukha, you feel some good qualities. Uh, but there's going to be variations on a theme. Uh, so if you try to have exactly the same experience, you're probably blocking yourself from having other good experiences. Uh, and this is one way of overcoming this idea of longing and desire. Actually, I don't know what's going to happen. Uh, it may be a completely different thing. You have to open your mind to different possibilities. Uh, and that is kind of takes away some of these uh, desires and excitements uh, because uh, actually it's out of your control now. So um, longing arises. You don't long for things anymore because you realize actually that is, uh, is uh, you don't know what's going to happen anyway. So no, no, need, no point of longing for anything here. And then we have, uh, while meditating, perceptions of diversity ar- arose in me here. Yeah, so then you make sure that none of these uh, things arise, none of these problems. Uh, perception of diversity means that too much going on in your mind. Uh, instead of stilling the mind, instead of samadhang chittang, you have more like nanatta uh, chittang. Uh, nanatta means diversity. And um, so here you are not focusing in the right way. Uh, you're not attending to the meditation in the right way. Instead of uh, focusing on the kind of the... Uh, a simplicity of the object, on the most uh, still part of the object, uh, on the part of the object that is unified, uh, you're kind of uh, allowing your mind to move a little bit. Uh, yeah? You're seeing more than you should be seeing. Uh, so you focus on the center of things, the core of things, uh, uh, on that part of the thing which is unified, and not on the diversity of the experience. Uh, because these kind of experiences, because they are, have to do with form, right? Remember, there's a form involved with this. We're talking about light and form. And form always has edges. It has shapes. There are ways you can look at that where you see multiplicity. And there are ways you can look at that which, which focuses on unity. So you focus on these things in such a way that it leads to unity rather than diversity. This is what this is about. Diversity leads to too much business in the mind. It's the opposite of stilling the mind. Uh, and here our job is to move towards unity. Yeah. Now we come to the last one. So many problems, uh, <laughs> potentially. But it's actually quite simple, right? It's, it's not all that complex. It's just that when you look at it like this, uh, I think the Buddha is trying to be very exhaustive uh, and uh, point out uh, you know, a number of problems uh, and... Uh, Sometimes you just go through it and it's no problem at all. So uh, anyway, while meditating, uh, heedful, keen and diligent, uh, I perceived both light and visions of forms. Uh, But before long, my light and vision of forms vanished. Uh, It occurred to me, what is the cause? What is the reason why my light and vision of forms vanish? Uh, It occurred to me, excessive excessive, um, concentration or... um, uh, staring at forms arose in me. And because of that, my samadhi and stillness fell away. When stillness falls away, the light and vision of forms vanish. 
I'll make sure that neither doubt nor loss of focus, nor dullness and drowsiness, nor terror, nor excitement, nor discomfort, nor excessive energy, nor overly lax energy, nor longing, nor perception of diversity, nor excessive staring at forms will vanish in me. Yeah. So um, I'm not sure if concentration, maybe concentration here is okay. Uh, concentration on forms, but usually we use the word concentration very often to mean samadhi, in which case it is not suitable as a translation. But if we use concentration more in a sense of staring at something, grasping it a little bit, holding on to it, uh, then it is an acceptable translation. Uh, the Pali word is atti nijayati or something like that, and uh, it doesn't it's the Pali word is not samadhi at all, it's something else. So the point here is just that you are staring too much, which implies a sort of a desire almost. Yeah, You're really kind of, you're trying too hard to focus on the form. You're not really relaxed about it, not standing enough. If you're staring at it, it means you're holding on to it. And if you're holding on to something, the process will stop evolving because you are grasping what is going on. And the purpose here is always to allow the process to evolve on, to go deeper and eventually go beyond the form. You cannot go beyond the form if you're holding on to it. And that's kind of, I think, part of the issue here, right here. So you have a relaxed attention. It's kind of, you know, it's, you can see how how this has to all balance very nicely. It's kind of find a balance. Not You have to attend, but it has to be relaxed at the same time. And uh, so it's kind of getting this balance right. That is really the, uh, the trick here in your meditation. Uh, so these are a large number of uh, possible problems. Uh, uh, remember that on this path, uh, the overcoming of problems is gradual. Uh, and uh, don't worry too much about these things if you are not there yet. Some of you are going to be dealing with these kind of things, but many of you are not uh, because it's still too refined. Uh, this is really the stage where the nimittas, the samadhi, you know, the form and light arises. Remember, we're dealing here with what we normally call samadhi nimittas in meditation. This is already very refined. Uh, and if you haven't got to that stage, you've got to deal with coarser defilements. Uh, and so know, knowing where you are on the path, knowing what you have to deal with is very important. Uh, what are the issues in your life that are the problems? Uh, and uh, for a lot of people, just keeping the precepts is difficult enough. Yeah, And uh, then you extend those precepts to go into all the areas of action and speech. And that is already for many people very hard to always speak the right words, not to fall into harsh speech and divisive speech and these kind of things. Yeah, uh, of course, the last one being the sampapalapa. It's it is what it sounds like. Yeah, <laughs> it sounds like kind of talking, uh, just talking nonsense. Or uh, uh, I, I know some of you, uh, you know, in the, in Malay and uh, Indonesian, uh, the word sampam is rubbish. <laughs> and palapa is talk, so it means literally rubbish talk, right? That's what it means. Uh, so sampai was very, it was good fun. I remember being in Indonesia and a few years ago, we used to go to Indonesia every year. And there's a kind of a large crowd there and I talk about sampai palapa. And the, my fellow was interviewing me, or who's kind of my interlocutor, is a very, very, very funny man. He's really, really cool. He's one of the kind of leading Buddhists of Indonesia. And he started laughing and he was pointing to the, to the rubbish basket. Ah, sampa, I said. <laughs> Over there, that's where the sampa goes. It means rubbish in, in kind of the Bahasa uh, Indonesian language. So that's kind of nice. There you see the ancient connections because uh, Indonesian language is very influenced by 
Pali and Sanskrit, uh, yeah, because that was the reigning religion in Indonesia and also in Malaysia in the uh, you know a thousand years ago, whatever. So those words are still there and are still being used in the same way here, yeah. and you can see the connections. It's kind of uh, always very fascinating here. Yeah. But uh, the point here is I'm trying to make is that um, overcoming of defilement is gradual. Overcoming of bad qualities is takes. You have to know what to focus on. Uh, what are the real issues for you? Uh, and you have to be honest with yourself. If you try to overcome the refined things when actually you need to overcome coarser things, uh, you're going to stop your progress on the path. Uh, People try to meditate uh, when they haven't really started practicing the precepts yet uh, or being kind. Uh, and then they often suppress things. And that suppression can often lead to all kinds of problems. Uh, so be honest with yourself. Uh, where are the issues? Uh, okay, I'm gonna, my speech has to become even better. Uh, then the mental content, how to overcome ill will, uh, especially ill will, very, very destructive on the path. Uh, and then uh, uh, your meditation starts to work. Once you overcome ill will and the greater desires in life, uh, then meditation becomes possible because uh, these are the things that distract you from meditation. They go into the past and the future, etc. And then eventually you come to the point when you deal with these very refined issues. Uh, so um, what happens next? Yeah, so all of the Buddha is overcoming all of these things. Uh, and there are more problems. You'll be surprised. Uh, <laughs> it always uh, there's more things to be done. Uh, so uh, then the Buddha continues, and this is what he says next: uh, While meditating, heedful, keen, and diligent, uh, I perceived light, but did not see forms. Uh, I saw forms, but did not see light. Uh, and this went on for a whole night, a whole day, even a whole night and day. So in other words. Meditation was going well, but uh, it wasn't quite balanced. Yeah, so you can see here that the ideal meditation should have both forms and light. It should be like a, a sun or a disc or a light or something like that. That is the ideal meditation. If you only have one, uh, you may have a problem. Uh, so I thought, what is the cause? What is the reason for this? Uh, it occurred to me when I don't focus on the foundation for forms, uh, but focus on the foundation of light, then I perceive light and do not see forms. But when I don't focus on the foundation of light, but focus on the foundation of the forms, then I see forms, but do not perceive light. And this goes on for a whole night, a whole day, even a whole night and day. So the foundation for forms and the foundation for light, this is the Ubasa nimitta, this is the word nimitta again. Yeah, it occurs in many different ways. So nimitta here is like the subject or the foundation or the cause for these things. And so one of the main causes is just what you are interested in, is what you are inclining your mind towards. And if you are inclining your mind towards forms, that is what the mind will see here. And you may not even be aware that you are inclining the mind in that direction. It's just a habit of the mind very often. Now, sometimes I have spoken with some of you, and some of you say that you see things in your meditation. right? And very often those things that you see in your meditation are precisely forms. Yeah, that, That's exactly what we see. We see forms. And very often those forms are these kind of things. But there's no light there. Yeah, there's not, it's not a, uh, it is not a kind of brilliant situation. It's just for ordinary forms. You see things in your mind's eye. Uh, and that is a, often a good sign. Uh, 
And, and the reason why it is a good sign that when you see things, because usually the mind starts to be empowered. Yeah, the mind that is dull doesn't usually see very much at all. It just to, doesn't have the energy to do things. So the fact that you are seeing anything at all, it means the mind is becoming creative. That means the mind has energy. So you're on the right track. Yeah? So you should feel, uh, you shouldn't, you know, it's not a bad thing that you are seeing forms. Uh, but uh, the problem is that it's usually too diverse. There's too many things going on. Uh, yeah, it doesn't have enough, still doesn't have enough power, enough energy. Uh, and you want to get, go to the point where the forms and the light comes together. It's a more simple thing. It's just light and forms coming together. Uh. So if, when you see, if you see things in meditation, good. Uh, but uh, don't stop there. Uh, go beyond. Come back to the breath. Uh, and when you come back to the breath, you are simplifying things. Uh, yeah? And eventually, when you come back to the breath, you allow the forms to be there in the background, uh, but you don't make them the main focus of your meditation. Uh, and then they eventually will fade away because the peace becomes more powerful. And then, eventually, will come a form together with the light. Uh, and that is the real nimitta that you want to focus on. Uh. So you get this uh, in the right stages. Uh, you don't become, you know, it's not bad, uh, but it's as you want to go beyond that. Uh. And then there are other times there are people who kind of whose mind becomes very bright, uh, yeah, but there's no form coming together with that. Uh, and that is also again a good sign because the brightness is often a sign of energy in the mind. Uh, uh, but uh, it is not focused enough, it is too di- diffuse. Uh, and you want to have something that you can kind of focus the mind on so as to bring the mind really together. Uh, and this is the idea of the form, it allows you, it has both the energy of the light and also the form that kind of helps you to focus a little bit uh, makes it easy to know what you how to bring the mind together uh. and uh, so then again you just go back to the breath you stay with the breath you allow the light to be there but you make the breath your main object you make it more peaceful and eventually you can expect the form and the light to arise together uh. And that is the ideal object. And it's quite clear from this passage that that is the ideal object uh, to take the samadhi even further. Uh. So um, these are very refined little things, uh, but, I, but uh, interesting, especially for those of you whose meditation is going well. Uh, you will really uh, enjoy these kind of uh, subtle ideas about how to bring the meditation forward. Uh. And then the Buddha goes on, yeah, and he then says, while meditating a heedful, keen and diligent, uh, I perceived limited light and saw limited forms, uh, or I perceived limitless light and I saw limitless forms. Uh, and this went on for a whole day, a whole night, and a whole day and night. So again, the samadhi is going well, that's why it goes on for so long, uh, but it's not quite right yet. Uh, I thought, what is the cause? What is the reason for this? It occurred to me, when my immersion or my samadhi is limited, then my vision is limited. And when my, with a limited vision, I perceive limited light and limited forms. But when my immersion, my samadhi is limitless, then my vision is limitless. And with limitless vision, I perceive a limitless light and see limitless forms. And this goes on for a whole night, a whole day, and even a whole night and day. And so this is, um, you know, it's just the mind, it's a perception in the mind, a perception that you are, uh, there's a limit in your mind. Yeah, you're kind of seeing a certain, uh, in the other place in the suttas, they talk about your samadhi extending over a certain area. And as long as your samadhi extends over a certain area, 
it means it is still limited uh, because you are limiting it to that area. Yeah, and uh, this, this, these are just perceptions of the mind. And sometimes they say, oh, it's like two or three village fields extended over that. Uh, uh, but the idea is to have no limits uh, in your samadhi, no boundary, no, no, no kind of uh, end point. Uh, and uh, so this is kind of the distinction, and, uh, distinction between these two. Uh, and uh, so you want this uh, feeling that the mind is becoming without limits. Uh, and this is one of the definitions of real samadhi. It is apamana. Apamana means without limit. Uh, it is mahagata. Mahagata means gone great. Uh, yeah? And these kind of things. Uh, so you, you learn the various, uh, after a while you get used to the various ways in which samadhi manifests in your mind. Uh, and you try to uh, you, 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 uh, expand it beyond all limits. Uh, so it becomes limitless in this way. Uh, and so you learn to work with your mind. And it's, I think when you get there, it's kind of, uh, it, it just happens. You know what you have to do and you, you get a feeling for it. But it means a lot of power. So if you feel that you cannot expand your mind fully, uh, it may just mean that you need to continue with the breath even uh, or with the samadhi nimitta, carry on, carry on uh, uh, to make it more powerful. And then eventually it is empowered to be able to do all of these kind of things. Uh. So you want the mind that is really expansive. It is a mind that is fully expansive. That is the one that enters eventually into the jhanas and these kind of things. This is all good fun, isn't it? This is all kind of really exciting stuff. <laughs> so um, then the Buddha goes on. After understanding that doubt, loss of focus or non-attention or dullness and drowsiness, uh, terror, excitement, discomfort, uh, excessive energy, overly lax energy, longing, uh, perception of diversity, and excessive staring on forms uh, are corruptions of the mind. These are upakilesas. Uh, I had given them up. So, uh, yeah, so this is kind of the power of the Buddha. He sees these things, he knows their drawbacks, and then he gives them up. Uh, I thought, uh, I have given up my mental corruptions. Uh, now let me develop samadhi in three ways. Uh, and I developed immersion while placing the mind and keeping it connected. Uh, while placing the mind but just keeping it connected. Uh, without placing the mind or keeping it connected. Uh, with rapture, without rapture, with pleasure uh, and with equanimity. Uh, so... Um, Three ways. Um, so I think the three ways here are the first three ways, and then the last parts are additions to that. Uh, so maybe originally this was just about the first three ways, which is goes up to without placing the mind uh, or keeping it connected. Uh, I think that's kind of where it may originally have stopped. Not sure. Uh, uh, otherwise, the th number three sounds a bit a bit strange. Anyway. Regardless, so what is this all about? And what this is about, this is about the jhanas. The jhanas talked about in different ways. So the very first one here is immersion. This is savitaka, savichara. This is the Pali word. This is placing the mind and keeping it connected. Savitaka is the placing of the mind. Savichara is the keeping it connected here. The, and the translation here is based on the explanation of these mental factors in the Visuddhimagga, how they are explained there. So sometimes these commentarial works can be helpful in clarifying things. And so the idea here in the first jhana, this is how Ajahn Brahm explains these states. And he always says that there is like a wobble in the first jhana. It's not fully still yet. 
Yeah, there's a still a slight movement of the mind, but it is an automatic movement of the mind. It's not the movement that you do. The mind does it uh, kind of just on its own. And uh, the reason is because you don't have the full confidence in the object yet. The mind is not fully happy or confident in the object, so it moves towards the object. But then it kind of, and then it holds on a little bit. That's this vichara. Moving on is the uh, is the placing the mind, and then it holds on a bit, and then it kind of goes back, and then it kind of has this wobble back and forth, uh, and it's like the bliss going stronger, then going weaker a little bit, uh, and that sort of that sort of experience. Uh. So this is the savitaka savichara experience, and it's very important to understand these things correctly here. Uh. Because sometimes it is thought that uh, the idea of vitaka elsewhere in the suttas means thinking. Uh, so some people think that you can think uh, yeah, in the deep states of meditation. Uh, but remember, these are uttari manusadamas. Uh, these are alangarya nanadasana visesas. Uh, they are superhuman states. Uh, they are uh, qualities of knowledge and vision worthy of the noble ones, uh, distinctions in meditation. Uh, there are something very special about these things. If you are still thinking, how special is it? You're still very much in this world, yeah, if you're thinking about things. And so these are going to be the most profound aspects of Vitaka Vichara that are possible in the world. And of course, the most profound aspects of thinking is precisely things like the very simple movement of the mind, the remnant restlessness of the mind. Yeah, this is kind of where thinking comes from. Thinking comes from the movement of the mind. And so this is the kind of the final, most subtle aspect of that thing which leads to thinking when the thinking mind becomes coarser down the track. Savitaka Savichara is what we have here. And the consequences of the first jhana is then that you have the bliss and happiness born of seclusion, the vivekaja pittisukha. Yeah, this is what comes with this. And this is a very specific kind of happiness. It is a happiness that is precisely the happiness where you are secluded from the five senses, from the five hindrances. It's the happiness born of seclusion. So every stage of the path of meditation brings a deeper state of satisfaction, contentment, still, peace, and happiness. One happiness after the other one. This is a very particular happiness called the happiness of the first jhana, and it's called vivekaja pittisukkha. Very profound kind of happiness that you're getting at this point. But still, it is not as profound as it can get, and that's why after a time you realize the negative consequences of uh, placing the mind, so you give up the placing of the mind without placing the mind, just keeping it connected. Uh, yeah, and this is like the mind holding on to the object a little bit. Uh, this is kind of the one and a half jhana, not the second jhana, the one and a half. Uh, and this is why here we're talking about the fivefold jhanas rather than the ordinary fourfold thing. Uh, so this is in between. You have vichara, but no vitaka. There's no placing of the mind, but there is the holding on, uh, yeah, the keeping it connected part. Uh. And so this is more subtle. Uh. You're getting very close to full samadhi now, because there is no movement left in the mind. Uh. There's a slight kind of the mind is holding a little bit. Mind is still a little bit uncertain, not fully confident in the object. Uh. But there comes a point when the mind is fully confident in the object. Uh. It doesn't really need to kind of move towards and away anymore. It doesn't need to hold anymore. It's completely relaxed and just goes fully into the object. And that is the samadhija pittisukkha of the second jhana. Avitaka, avichara, no vitaka, no vichara. And this is what is meant by this one. 
It's a new form of bliss, a bliss you have never had before, born of stillness, samadhija, piti, sukha, at this particular point. Second jhana, uh, and beyond, of course, as well, because this is also an expression of anything that is beyond the second jhana, because those, those are similar kind of, uh, uh, have, have the same kind of experience in terms of lack, lack of vitaka, vichara. Uh. So this is a, a, an alternative way of thinking about samadhis. Yeah? I'm going into a bit of detail here, and uh, man, most of you probably think this is way down the path, uh, uh, but uh, you know, it's nice to have a little bit of the map of the territory in mind, uh, so you know what uh, will come, will arrive eventually if you practice this path fully. Uh. So very extraordinary, interesting things, uh, these things. Uh. So the last one here, the one with without placing the mind and keeping it connected, usually refers to the second jhana, but it is also true for the higher jhanas as well. All of the higher jhanas are without placing the mind and keeping it connected. Uh. So from this point on, this is true for everything, uh, immaterial attainments, the whole lot. Uh. And then it adds these other things, uh, uh, various kinds of samadhis, with rapture, without rapture. Uh. So with rapture is the first and second jhana, yeah? and also the one and a half jhana. Without rapture is the third jhana and the fourth jhana. With pleasure, with pleasure is the third, f- first, second and third jhana. They all have sukha. Uh. And then with equanimity is the last one, only the fourth jhana. So uh, these are just different ways of expressing the jhanas through this fivefold scheme. Uh, and everything uh, there is, uh, so all of that is kind of uh, seen through this alternative way. And this is kind of one of the marvelous qualities about the Buddha, being able to describe these incredibly profound things in, in different ways and from different angles. Uh, and I know Ajahn Ram, he, he says, well, it's actually amazing that anyone is able to describe these things because basically you exit the ordinary world, you enter an alternative reality. And even the describing this, Ajahn Ram, you know, this description of the jhanas are just extraordinarily, you know, that people can do this. One of the things that you often hear about various meditation traditions, they often talk about these things being... Uh, ineffable, uh, yeah, it's a very common word that is used to describe spiritual experience. They're ineffable, in other words, they cannot really be explained, they cannot be described because they're beyond ordinary human experience. But of course, they can be described because there is a connection between these, uh, these deep states of samadhi and our ordinary waking state. There's a connection between because, because we gradually move into these things. Uh, yeah? And so there is a connection there. Uh, and so if you follow that gradual movement, uh, there, is what, there are ways of describing these things. Uh, it's just that you have to really know what you're talking about. You have to really have these experiences fully. Uh, and then, of course, the Buddha, who is the master of uh, uh, mastering the mind, understanding the mind, understanding the nature of human beings, of course, he is able to use that connection to describe these things. Uh, so there is a connection. It is not completely different from ordinary experience. Uh, there is a movement, a gradual movement in, uh, towards these things. Uh, and so uh, they can be described. And of course, that is exactly what the Buddha does. So when other religions or teachers or whatever say it's ineffable, uh, I say our, our response should be not, not really. It's not really ineffable. Nothing is really ineffable. Uh, everything can somehow be related to, uh, to experience. Uh, it's a bit of a cop-out cop to say it's ineffable because you are kind of, uh, 
you are uh, allowing people to read almost whatever they want into these things, uh, which of course is also wrong. Uh. So uh, anyway, uh, so then uh, now we come to the very end of the path. So this uh, here takes us all the way to the end of the path uh, when I had developed immersion in these ways. Uh, yeah, all the four jhanas, uh, the knowledge and vision arose in me here. Uh, my freedom is unshakable. This is my last rebirth. Now there are no more future lives. So based on all of this, you gain... I wonder whether there should be some dots there. No, maybe, maybe not. Maybe this is correct. Yeah, based on all of this, the jhanas are kind of... These are the building blocks that make these kind of insights possible. And then eventually... This is your knowledge and vision. Uh, an arahant knows that had ended samsara. Uh, if you don't know you have ended samsara, you're not an arahant. Uh, so my freedom is unshakable. Akupo akupo me cheto vimuti. Akupa. This is my last rebirth. Ayang antima jati. Now there's no more future lives. Um, Mm, what is that again? Anyway, my mind is a bit, little bit blurry, so I can't really re recall that one. Yeah, although it's a very, um, Natidani punabavoti. Natidana punabavoti. Now there's no more future uh, existence. Yeah. All right. Uh, I think that's what it is. Anyway. So anyway, good enough. Uh, uh, this is what the Buddha said. Satisfied, Venerable Anuruddha was happy with what the Buddha had said. So um, this is the usual ending of the suttas. And he had uh, pretty good reasons to be happy with this sutta, I reckon. It's pretty, pretty kind of profound and beautiful and really well expressed. And so this is one of those uh, things about the suttas of the Buddha is that they are sometimes... Uh, we don't really take on board all the information that is there. Actually, there's a lot of information in the suttas. Uh, and by reading it correctly, by contemplating what is going on, and by understanding what is there, uh, I think pretty much everything you need to know is actually there. Uh, yes, you need someone with a bit of experience to kind of guide you a little bit, to not misunderstand what is there. And that is why the living tradition in Buddhism is so important. Uh, you have the theory that makes us all honor the same teacher, the same teachings, and you also have the living experience, the living tradition at the same time. And this is what makes Buddhism so extraordinarily powerful, that mixture of ancient scriptures where we're all honoring the same teacher and no one is really kind of considered, we don't take individual teachers quite in the same way as they do in other religions. And that's a very healthy thing about Buddhism, that we all bow down to the Buddha at the end of the day here. And then that combined with the living tradition is what to me makes uh, the Buddhist teaching so, uh, Buddhist, so, such a powerful teaching. Uh, there's less chance of getting into guru worship and, uh, uh, and uh, sects and, uh, and all of these kind of things, uh, while at the same time having a tradition that is alive. Uh, and this is uh, the beauty of this. Uh. So there you are. There is the uh, Upa Kilesa Sutta. Next time uh, Ajahn Brahm is in Melbourne, you can ask him to do the same sutta, see what he says. He'll give you a far better explanation of what I have done. But this is, a, this is a good start for you anyway, to kind of get going with these things. So uh, that is all for this morning. And so please keep on uh, enjoying yourselves. Have a nice lunch. And we'll see you back again at 2 o'clock this afternoon here.